This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Well, you are my first interview that I'm doing during uh, quarantine 2020. So how are you surviving? <laughs> it's it's this odd world we've all been thrust into, isn't it? <laughs> it's so weird. Oh my goodness. Now, where are you located? I'm in Durham, North Carolina. Okay. And, and are you guys on lockdown? We are. We are. Um, essential services are still allowed. So I can still, um, I could go to the grocery store um, and luckily I have been able to at least go into the church office to record, um, audio services, but boy, are we careful? Like just a few of us, four of us. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Meet in a big office, and we stay far from each other. And I literally go with my Clorox wipes in hand. Mm -hmm. So, do you work for your church? <laughs> I am a volunteer, but yes, I'm um, I'm the worship service coordinator, so I work on the worship planning team and also do some preaching. So, yeah. Oh, cool. Okay, cool. Well, uh, tell me a little bit about you and your family. Uh, we want to talk about your book today, but let's get started with just a little background and uh, about yourself. Oh, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't tell anybody about myself without talking about my family because my husband and I will have been married 35 years. Wow. Yeah. So I have been um, a family person um, for a long, long time. <laughs> and, and when I say that, I mean my family, not my family of origin. Um, I was married, obviously, from looking at my picture, you can tell that I was married at age 12, right? <laughs> yes, no, you really, truly, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Actually, I was married um, when I was young. I got, I graduated from college and got married seven weeks later. So I've wow. been married since, since I was a young woman. My husband and I kind of um, had to grow up together. But after we'd been married six years, um, we had our first child, uh, a darling little redheaded boy who is now almost 29 years old um, and is married himself. And then we had two more redheaded sons. So I have three young adult children. My baby, baby now, turned 
23 yesterday. So, 23. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about things like picking your child up from preschool and those kinds of things, <laughs> I remember those days so clearly. And um, what I've learned is that all those old adages and the old wives tales and things, it turns out they're true that the days are long, but the years really are short. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, I'm in the middle of all of that right now. I have a two and a four year old, so um, so I. But I always say that I totally don't mind when people repeat those things to me because I really I I want to soak it up. I want to like appreciate the moments that I'm having right now. So I totally appreciate that. Yeah. Well, it is amazing how how fast it goes. So you you guys, those of you who have little kids right now, I think have the blessing and the curse of the smartphone because it's so mm-hmm. easy to be absorbed in things other than your children. And yet with your smartphone, you have a wonderful camera and video camera right there in the palm of your hand. Um, and when I look back at the, the few VHS <laughs> videos we made of my children, I think, Oh, wouldn't it have been fun to be able to just videotape anything at a moment's notice. So yeah, that's I, I don't do that many videos, but people say, no, 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 make sure you do the videos because it's so fun to look back and listen to those little voices that you are totally going to miss later on. So I try to remember to do them like a, a few a month videos. <laughs> Honestly, um, if you do it too often, you could just turn your children into performers. Right, exactly. That's not um, So let's talk about your book. It's called Mythical Me. And when I saw it, and, you know, it's sort of, it's about comparison. I'm going to have you tell me a little bit about it, but I knew that, that it was something that I would totally relate to because I, I have this problem. I told my husband when I was reading your book this weekend, I said, this book is about um, comparison. I was like, do you think I compare myself a lot to people? And he was like, yes. <laughs> so um, it totally was up my alley. But tell me about how the book came to be and why you decided to write it. Well, I didn't want to, I kind of was dragged kicking and screaming into writing it, to tell you the truth. I, um, as you know, have been a blogger for many, many years, but I had not necessarily considered myself a long form writer. Um, But I was brought face to face with the problem of comparison many years ago uh, by my husband. (laughs) In fact, he stopped me mid conversation. I was, I was in the process of comparing myself relentlessly to three different friends with whom I had recently spent time with. And he stopped me mid-sentence and um, told me that I was constantly noticing the best attributes of other people and comparing myself to those best attributes. In fact, the title of the book comes from a statement he made. He said, you have created for yourself a mythical composite woman made up of all those best attributes. And that's who you think you should be, but she doesn't exist. And um, I have to admit, I was a little defensive at first when he told me that, but on later consideration, I realized he was right. And yet when I looked for help with this issue of comparison, what I found was mostly so surface level. Um, some of it was inspirational, but nothing really dug down deep into the kind of issue that I was confronting. So I ended up um, doing what I do, which is 
reading everything out there, studying, and finally realizing that there was an approach to it that came out of um, my interest in theology. I'm a theology nerd, and um, that's where I began actually getting some help with the problem, and it was not what I expected. And I realized that perhaps I had a message that I ought to share. So that's how I came to write the book. Years ago, I asked my friend Richard Foster, who um, is author of Celebration of Discipline and other wonderful books, um, asked him for some writing advice. And his one piece of advice was, be sure you have something to say. Mm-hmm. So I didn't write until I felt like I actually had something to say about this. Now, what was that process like for you? Because, you know, you're talking to a fellow writer, so I'm always curious what other writers, how their process goes. So did you start by thinking you were going to write a book and start a proposal? Or did you just say, I got to get this out and start sort of writing general ideas? What was that like? I started by, actually, I have a friend who is a writing coach. And I called called her and said, can we have coffee? And um, told her a little about the ideal ideas that were just um, jumping around in my head. And um, after two hours of conversation, she said, this sounds interesting. And so we made an appointment. Um, Just I I, I asked her if she had any any professional time to spend with me. And she did have a little time in her schedule. So I booked a few hours of consulting with her and told her that my aim was was to discern whether I had a book-length message. And the one thing I knew was that I didn't want to write a book that would make a good article. Mm-hmm. Because frankly, I've read a number of those. Yeah. I've read so many books that I think, you know, this would have been a great blog post, but it's not enough. There's not enough of a trajectory. There's not an arc here. There's not something for me to follow and learn from beginning to end. And um, I wasn't sure if I had enough for, um, as we began to call it, a book-length message. And um, after some time spent with her, most, most of which she just interviewed me. She just asked me questions and took notes And at the end of that process, she said, I do think you have a message, and I do think that it's book length. Um, So then I spent, uh, honestly, I spent months and months writing a book proposal. Mm -hmm. And from there, I figured it was in the hands of publishers to discern whether they agreed that it could be a book length message. So now, sorry, go ahead. Work. I'm sorry, I put a lot of work into the proposal process, which, as you know, is a really vulnerable process. <laughs> yes, and, and most proposals, you're required to submit a couple chapters. Did you do that? I did. Boy, I submitted an introduction and two chapters, and then um, the publisher I ended up working with, um, they asked me for an additional chapter, which I labored over and submitted and I, I got a clue that they were pretty seriously interested when they actually asked for some revision of mm-hmm. that additional chapter. Wow. And they, um, so I thought, well, okay, they're invested at this point. Right. Um, so I, I revised that additional chapter and submitted it. And they said, okay, yes, we do. We do like this. And we want to offer you a contract. 
So were you working with an agent? I wasn't. And oh, wow. I, I would say that was a mistake. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, one of the reasons I wasn't working with an agent is because uh, I had a publisher who was already interested. Mm-hmm. And my thought was if, and that was InterVarsity Press, and I thought, if, if they don't want the book, then I'll get an agent. Um, that's not what I would advise other other writers. Right. That's yeah. what I've heard as well. <laughs> yeah. Just because you don't know what, just because as a first-time author, of course, like, it's there's so much that you don't know that you need to cover your bases. So that's uh, interesting that you were able to get yeah, it, though, without. Taking um, part of my advance and hiring an attorney to go over the contract. Well, mm-hmm. an agent would have been able to, you know, so right off the bat, I ended up spending money. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's, it's okay. It was fine. And, and luckily I am, I did publish with a, a publisher of very high integrity. Um, mm-hmm. But it just would have, it would have been good to have someone in my corner who knew the business and could have helped me, you know, with clear every hurdle. That would have been good. But Live and learn. <laughs> well, let's talk about the book. Um, can you kind of give an overview of some of the themes that you cover and the ways in which you see women comparing themselves the most? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't know that um, I've, before I wrote the book, I had not necessarily run into people who who were as entrenched in comparison as I was. Now listen to that. I'm comparing myself to other people. <laughs> um, but since writing the book, people have come out of the woodwork who um, say, yes, I, I do this too. For the longest time, I thought I was the only one subjecting herself to, to this kind of thing. But um, what I discovered is that people compare themselves as if, every one of us were just component parts. So for instance, if you're a mother, you might compare yourself to other mothers. If you're an attorney, you might compare yourself to other attorneys. If you're um, a homeschooler, you might compare yourself to other homeschoolers. If you're a professor, you compare yourself to other professors. A lot of that comes about naturally because it's what happens in real life, right? This is how we get better at things is by looking at people who are perhaps farther along on a career path or farther along in a journey. And we look at people for inspiration. But And so I don't think that comparison is inherently a bad thing. In fact, that's one of the things I talk about in the book is that there are lots of great uses of comparison. But when we begin comparing our our persons with other persons, when we, when we use people as measuring sticks to assess ourselves, what we've done, I think, in the very act is an isolating thing. And um, the way I began to get some relief from the comparison problem was to realize on a very deeply theological basis that human beings are created for connection, not for isolation. And inherent in a lot of comparing we do is this um, kind of a disembodying of other people. We, we treat people, it's an objectification, actually. If I use you as a way to measure myself, then that is, that's using you as a tool rather than 
loving and treating you as a sister. Mm-hmm. And this is not, is not a problem only faced by women by any means. Um, I've talked with a lot of men, a number of whom have um, read my book, and they say that men do this as much as, if not more than, women, but perhaps in different ways. So um, this this book is more of an um, a deep dive into what comparison is and what can result from it. And in my case, what resulted from it was um, uh, a deep-seated insecurity that needed to be addressed. In fact, I say that um, I really believe that insecurity is the root of comparison. I mean, we're all looking for assurance. And so that insecurity, which I define as lack of assurance, leads to comparison. But insecurity is also the fruit of comparison because comparison does not <laughs> does not reassure. It might bring us a tiny bit of assurance for a moment, but generally speaking, what happens when we compare is that we either feel less than the object of our comparison or we feel greater than the object of our comparison. Rarely does it lead just to okay, reassurance and an equal than kind of um, result. Mm-hmm. So more more lack of assurance, more insecurity results from it, and it becomes it becomes a spiral. Um, so that's a trap, I think, and it's a trap that the enemy of our soul uses because I, I really think what what God would have for us is such deep seated assurance that we don't really need to compare ourselves with others. Yeah, and one of the things you you talk about, one aspect of comparison that you talk about in here is. Uh, you're feeling as a blogger, you watching like a friend of yours that became, you know, got really successful in the blogging world, uh, sort of probably to a place where you would have loved to be. And I totally related to that as someone who also is a former blogger um, and now doing freelance writing, I find myself getting sometimes bitter uh, looking at people that are doing the things that I want to do or someone that started in the same place and you know, I see them achieving things that I want to achieve. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you did? And, and maybe this goes to the uh, spiritual component that you're talking about and sort of uh, wanting to talk about spiritual formation, which is something that you're passionate about. What are some of the things that you were able to do to sort of fight against this every day when it would kind of come up in your soul or whatever? It does come up in your soul. That's a great question. Actually, um, there are a couple of things, and the first of it is getting um, a bit of a handle on some truth. Um, one of the things within the, the realm of spiritual formation that I've learned is that you really have to start with sorting out what you believe about God. Because if you have your, your narratives about God wrong, if you, if you think of of God the way I often did as a, um, a disappointed or angry judge, <laughs> disappointed father or angry judge, then your, your work in spiritual formation can take you down just a, a road that leads to more and more destruction. You be- can become more and more entrenched in false beliefs. So getting some some of your beliefs about God and about yourself and about other people sorted is the beginning point there. Um, and then once you understand deeply at, at, a, at a soul level the truth 
about God as, um, I would say, God as three persons, the eternal trinity, and um, God as love, and God as being with us and for us. Then you can begin to understand the truth about yourself as a beloved child, and everyone around you also as beloved children. And from there, you can work on combating the habit of comparison, because that's what I finally realized it was. For me, at least, it had become habitual. It was my um, default response to just about any stimulus. So if I saw someone else's success, immediately my thought was, she's got it what it takes, or he's so lucky, or whatever, and I'm not like that, and I should be like that. It was a habit that had to be um, combated. And habits, um, modern neuroscience has shown us that habits are deeply, deeply embedded in our brains. Habits can't, can't really be just broken. It's not as if you can suddenly have new information and realize that, oh, comparison's not good for you. So voila, you never do it anymore. That doesn't happen. It's deeply embedded, and it, it has to be impacted not just by a magical thinking, suddenly I cannot do it, but by change, a process of change. And um, it's, it's so amazing to me that, that modern neuroscience is now giving um, scientific meat to what spiritual teachers have known for years. Thomas Akempis, centuries ago, wrote, habit overcomes habit. And that is exactly what neuroscience is showing, that you don't, you don't just break a habit, you replace a, a bad habit with a good one. You interrupt the cycle. And you can do that with comparison, just like you can with other habits. So I have learned to um, head things off at the pass sometimes by, by taking up some new habits. For instance, before I ever get out of bed in the morning, I pray the Lord's Prayer. And that helps me get started on the right foot. Or by interrupting things as they come up. I've learned to, to recognize those feelings as they rise. And not to berate myself for them, but to recognize them as a direction that's going to be unhealthy. And to replace it, um, usually, often, very often, with a prayer right in that moment. Um, I've developed some breath prayers that have helped me when, when those feelings of um, comparison arise. And it's, it's been really helpful. I won't say that I'm cured um, any more than I think an alcoholic would not say I used to be an alcoholic. He would say I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a recovering comparer. Mm -hmm. Now, was the process of writing the book, was that part of recovering and healing? A, to a large extent, yes. Um, I think I had to go through an awful lot of healing before I could write the book. Mm -hmm. uh, because, well, for one thing, a, a lot of my story um, for years was was shrouded in feelings of shame. And I had to have some help to, to get past that to be able to share my story. Um, so a lot of healing preceded the writing. But then as I actually wrote through it and thought, how can I put this into a form that might be helpful to others? Oh, yeah, that was very helpful. I even uh, as I, as I surveyed my own life and thought, what have I done that's been helpful? 
um, some of those new patterns got got even more embedded, which is good. Now, the other another big kind of theme in the book or big subject matter in the book is um, a syndrome that you were born with. And you and I would love if you could just tell us a little bit about that and how that has been a big part of your story and a big part of this book. Yeah, well, and, and um, as you can imagine, that's some of what was shrouded in shame for me. I was born with a really, really rare disorder. It's called Clapel Trenonay syndrome, <laughs> and it's um. That's why I didn't say it. <laughs> right, and and I've probably butchered the pronunciation. It's two French names, and as a, not a French speaker, who knows how well I have said those names? But um, it is ultra rare. It's a it's such a rare um, disease that very little is is known about it historically. And so when I was born, my Mother's physicians had never encountered it. My pediatricians had never encountered it. So it was actually not diagnosed until I was an adult. And um, my own child's pediatrician was just a diagnostic whiz. And he noticed that I had a birthmark on one leg and not on the other. And he began asking me questions, and it was from him that I got the di- diagnosis. But it's that birthmark that has been the most difficult thing to to deal with. Most of the right side of my body is covered by a port wine stain. Um, so it's, I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat it. It's ugly. I mean, there's there's just no no way to put it, other than the fact that it is um, um, disfiguring. It is um, pervasive because all of my, or most of my right leg, my right hip, my torso, all the way up my back is just, um, rather than being normal pigmentation, it's um, um, very irregular stain. And it was really, really a hard thing to deal with when I was growing up. Nobody else had a birthmark like that. Um, certainly in adolescence, it was difficult, but then on into adulthood because it's, it's very noticeable. And, um, because it was noticed so often when I was younger, I began to believe that it's the first thing that people notice about me. I assume that it's the one thing when I walk into a room that people will notice, and I had to learn, and really most of this learning has come in just in the past dozen years or so. I've learned that it's not the first thing that other people notice. It's the thing that's uppermost in my mind. And I've learned that other people share that particular trait. They don't necessarily have a birthmark, but they have some physical characteristic or sometimes an emotional or mental characteristic that they assume is what everyone else is noticing. It's what other people are talking about. You know, so I figured that if I walked into a room and you were there, you would think of me as, oh, she's that woman with the big birthmark. When in truth, you probably wouldn't have noticed at all. So there's a self-consciousness that comes from having um, something like this rare illness that um, really, really ends up, can end up pointing you toward 
an entrenched journey with comparison. You know, it began from when I was a little bitty girl. I was always looking at myself and realizing that I didn't look like other people. So that's been a healing journey. <laughs> and, you know, one, one part of your book uh, that was sort of heartbreaking to read was just you talking about your parents See, like never getting to see you as quote not flawed because they were told immediately about your birthmark when you were born and I'm sure as a parent and me as a parent we know that like we would never think that our babies were flawed no matter what they looked like yeah. um have you been able to make peace with that thought that really was plaguing you that that was a hard one um because partly because um I never knew that about my parents until after I had a child. It was when my, my mother was helping me after my first child was born that she told me that story. And with the birth of my own baby fresh in my mind at that point, it did break my heart. And then um, it wasn't very many years later that my mother died. And so for the longest, I just wished that I'd had the chance to talk with her more about that mm -hmm. and to explore what that did to her heart. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never have the answer to that. But I did have to come to some peace about that. And the peace I came to was that I think for any young mother, that would be heartbreaking. Certainly for me, that would be heartbreaking. And it's been a good thing because they're, you know, obviously my mother wasn't perfect, but being able to think of her as a young mom who had to deal with that heartbreak and who went on to be the best mom she could be, which wasn't perfect, but was good. It's helped me have a lot of sympathy for her. And it's given me sympathy for myself and my own parenting and sympathy for other parents. The truth is we are all getting it wrong in a lot of ways, but we're doing the best we can. And, um, you know, that, that has to be enough to be getting on with. So it, gr growing up with this disorder, I mean, I can't imagine how hard it was as a kid, as you've already talked about, but you know, here you are growing up, you got your own kids and everything. What would you say you've learned about God, uh, as a as a result of dealing with this your whole life that god is kind and loving and very very close what i've learned about god is that the best way to know about his character is to look at jesus who was so close to the brokenhearted. Nothing, no physical ailment put Jesus off of any person. Mm -hmm. He drew close to people. And the, the things that made people feel as if they couldn't or they shouldn't approach Jesus, those are the very things that drew Jesus in. And that's the way God is. Mm -hmm. So kind, so loving, so available. And um, the one thing that I would love people to know, to the very heart of hearts, I would love people to know how much God 
delights in them, how much God loves them. Because honestly, so many of us feel unlovable. It's not that we feel unloved, we feel unlovable. <laughs> so, so we doubt that we could be loved. We doubt that we are loved because we don't feel that we're lovable. And yet God's love is the, the antidote for that because he, that, that's what he does. What he does best, I think, is love those who feel unlovable. His love cuts straight through that in a way that's deeply personal and that has made so much difference to me. I think a lot of us, especially in the Western world, um, in the sort of meritocracy that we live in, if we find ourselves unlovable, then we project those feelings onto God. We think of him as a judge um, rather than as someone who would cross any world to come to, to rescue us, to lift us into his life. And how do you think someone that's feeling unloved, how do you think they could open up their mind to the, the possibility that they are loved and lovable? Is, are there any steps that you could suggest they take to start moving toward that path? Absolutely. Um, spending more time with Jesus and with people who have spent a lot of time with Jesus. That's made the biggest difference in my life is actually... Um, listening to people who have spent a lot of time with God. So, for instance, um, you know, I certainly would say there are books I would recommend, um, but particularly books about people who um, are not professionally scornful, but who are who are open-hearted and willing to adopt a childlike stance as they encounter God. So, for instance, one of the smartest people, probably the smartest person I have ever met, um, was Dallas Willard. Oh, who, wow. I'm reading his, the, I'm reading a book of his for the first time right now, and I'm like underlining every sentence. <laughs> you know, Dallas was a, a philosophy professor, and he really was so, so profoundly intelligent. But I would also say Dallas is probably the most humble person I ever knew. And Dallas could talk about God. And in the talking, his eyes would just fill with tears. He, he would get choked up as he talked about how, how much God loves us. And then he would go on to say things that were so profound that all of us would be scrambling for our notebooks to write down everything he said. And yet, as he said those things, his eyes would fill with tears and he would recognize the goodness of God in his own life. Spending time with people like Dallas has had such a profound effect on me because I realized that it, it's not about what we can bring to the table. It's about accepting this love that's already there for us and then offering what we have just as an offering. It, you know, there, there's no need to try to impress people. God created us to bless people. And, and learning that, that I don't have to be all that in a bag of chips. I can just be me because God created me to just be one part of this immense, beautiful picture 
us working together, each contributing what we have. It's it's so refreshing and so freeing. So I would say spend spend some time in the Gospels and then spend some time with people who have a childlike faith and are just willing to share what they have. Uh, another part of your story that's a hard thing to deal with is you've had some other medical issues in your family with your kids. And, um, you know, I guess my question for you on that front is just, that's something that you can't control when you're a mom and your kid has to go into surgery. Um, you know, where do you find the strength and how do you interact with God in those moments? In those moments, there were two things in particular that made the most difference for me. And you're right, my, my husband and two of my kids have a um, genetic disorder that has huge implications in our lives. So in the past dozen years, we've done three major open heart surgeries and a, a bunch of, of other really scary episodes. Um, two things I would say there. One, the Psalms, literally the Psalms. Um, I would take my, my big old, as my, my husband calls my industrial strength Bible, the one that has all the, all the notes I've written. <laughs> I, would, I would have it with me in the surgical waiting room because the Psalms are so honest. You know, um, Jesus quoted a Psalm on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that's Psalm 22. You know, that is a song that the people of God sang when they felt forsaken by God. Um, and reading through the Psalms with, with all the honesty and with all the, the poetry that's heart-touching, but also all the raw emotion, that, that was really, really helpful. And the other thing that ministered to me most was people, people who came and sat with me, who held my hand, who, uh, you know, Eric, I tear up thinking about it. Um, one friend was there in a, a moment of huge, huge emotion for me. Um, it was, it's funny, when my 14-year-old son was having major open-heart surgery, I was kind of, um, you know, I was a strong mom. I was going to get through it. I had done all this preparation. I was going to be good at it. And I was in the surgical waiting room, and I was dealing with things really well, I thought. And several friends had come, and I, I dealt with the prep pretty well. And I dealt with sending him back pretty well. But when they called out to the waiting room and told me, that they had made the incision, I fell apart. <laughs> I collapsed. I burst into tears. And a friend of mine grabbed my hand and said, let's just pray right now. I couldn't. All I could do was cry. All I can do is cry as I think about it now. Yeah, I can but imagine. The friend who was there for me could pray for me. She lent me a little bit of her faith in that moment and just prayed me through it and stayed with me. And I've had friends who have done that in every single moment. 
And it hasn't been just one friend. It's been a bunch of friends working together who have been there for me. And they have done everything from the most practical things, like cleaning my house. <laughs> to I remember one friend, um, when we uh, we were here, we had to call. My, my husband had had major surgery, and we were back at home. But then he had a, a terrible episode that ended in our calling 911 and going back to the hospital via ambulance. That was really scary. And I called a friend who came over and literally cleaned off the supper dishes that we had left on the table. We had to get up from dinner to go to the hospital. So she came and did my dishes for me. That kind of thing is what carries you through. And it's important to me because that's been part of the antidote to comparison is recognizing that though that relationship is what we're made for. Connection is, is the way God designed us to be because he himself is relationship. This is how he designed his image bearers to be. And so often I think we feel like we, that not only um, do we have to go things alone, but that we are supposed to be able to do things by ourselves. Well, no, we're not. It's not the way we were made. We're not supposed to be able to do it by ourselves. And I think that's a it's an incredibly harmful myth that you're you're supposed to be able to do it all. No, you're not. You're not. You're supposed to be in relationship with people, and you all do a part, and every part is vital. It's yeah. very yeah yeah. I'm picturing like you know somebody walking on a tightrope, and the difference between having nothing underneath them to having like hundred people there to catch them. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's kind of like that, like the intentionality, people don't put enough intentionality in, in building the community that they need and having those people, um, you know, even in times like right now with the, what's going on today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And part of the reason for that, people are so busy because they think that they have to stand alone. If you're going to be a standalone person, you're going to have to spend a lot of time getting really good at a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you recognize that you're part of a body and you spend some time building that body. So I think time spent on building the kinds of connections we need is time better spent than trying to be all that for yourself. I also loved what you said about borrowing someone else's faith because I think that's really, uh, I think that's an important concept that gets, that doesn't get talked about because I mean, whether you're talking about someone that's having doubts or having struggles or whatever it may be, um, sometimes that is enough to get you through that moment because you can't do it on your own. And I, I just love that idea of that. Well, it's been important in my journey. Now, uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about is we kind of touched on spiritual formation a little bit, but, you know, sometimes people hear the word or hear that term and they're like, I don't even know what that is. Like, what does that mean? Uh, especially someone that is a new Christian, um, but even those who have been Christians for a long time, that might be like a foreign concept. Could you explain exactly what that is and what are some of the like first steps to get started if someone wants to pursue that? Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's a term that gets used a lot these days, but I do think there are a lot of people who, who wonder what on earth. It is really just the, uh, 
identifying and accepting the fact that we are all being formed in every way. Every person is physically formed, for instance. We're born with a certain genetic package, and we grow and develop, and our bodies are formed. That's, that's a pretty easy concept to, to realize. And as we, as we grow into adulthood, we realize there are exercises that we can undertake that help our bodies to be formed in a good and healthy way. The same thing applies in the spiritual realm. Our spirits are being formed by forces good and ill. And spiritual formation, Christian spiritual formation, is really the process that we can undertake um, recognizing that our spirits are being formed. This is a process that we undertake in cooperation with God, the Holy Spirit, and with fellow believers so that our, um, our souls are nourished and our characters are transformed into Christ-likeness. This is the goal, is to, is to become more like Jesus. And, um, you know, it's very easy, I think, in the Christian realm to think only about um, the end goal of um, going to heaven when we die, right? But Dallas Willard, again, used to like to say that um, we should think less about getting people into heaven and more about getting heaven into people. That is, if we want to go to heaven when we die, great. But is that a place that we want to be? We want to become the kind of person, the kind of person who will be glad to be there. Heaven is where what God wants done is done in every way. So we need to become the kind of people who want that, who want what God wants. And that's a process. That's not something that we are just automatically equipped with. We want to become Jesus, and we can do it partly by um, undertaking, again, exercises, just like we develop physically. There are exercises that we can take part in now that put us in place to be transformed. You know, inner transformation, spiritual transformation, that's, that's deep work that's done inside a person's heart. That's done by God. But we can do things to put ourselves in a place for that transformation to happen. Things like prayer and Bible study and meditating on God's Word and on God's creation. Things like service to others and things like rest and worship and celebration. Those we typically call spiritual disciplines. And that just means these are exercises that people of God have um, undertaken throughout the Christian centuries, but noticing that those are means of God's grace. Those are ways that God reaches to us. And um, we offer our bodies, like Romans 12 says, as living sacrifices. This is how we do it. We, we do these things. And God is faithful to meet us there. And um, little by little, we become more like Jesus. We go, you know, people will sometimes say to me, oh, you just have to love your enemies. And I sometimes want to laugh and say, that's not an automatic response. Turning the other cheek is not something you can do just because you turned your head. It's a matter of learning and growing and, and putting yourself second or third 
time after time in lots of hidden little ways so that more and more you can put yourself last and recognize that even your enemies are people created in God's image. And you can grow into those things rather than just assuming that you can jump into them. I know you're a runner, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about training for a marathon. Um, You know what? I'm not a runner. So if I went tomorrow and thought, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to to run a half marathon. That'll be good for me. (laughs) I, I might be able to gut it out for a mile or two. But there's no way I'd make it to the 13.1 mark because I haven't trained for it. And these spiritual exercises are a way of of training to become more like Jesus rather than just gritting your tre- your teeth and, and trying to be there in the heat of the moment. Yeah, which is ultimately, I mean, if, we're Christ- if we are Christians, that is the most important thing in our lives. And so they're really worth investing in. And you... Are, you work with an organization that has resources for that, right? That's right, yeah. I, um, I'm the ministry team, and I actually serve as vice chair of the board of an organization called Renovare, um, the Latin word that means to renew. Um, it was founded by Richard J. Foster, who wrote Celebration of Discipline, which is kind of the um, the classical, not the classical, but uh, in the modern era, it's, it's the text that, that brought the spiritual disciplines um, to, to most of the, especially American evangelical world. Richard began this ministry um, over 30 years ago now just to, to, to model this life of being formed into Christ-likeness and to advocate for it and to provide resources. So lots and lots of resources to help people along this path of transformation into Christ-likeness. Okay. Um, so we've come to the end of the podcast, and so I have a few fun questions for you, Rochella. Hopefully you got a chance to look those over. Um, what is one bit of advice that you would pass on to listeners, just something that you've learned in your lifetime that you think is worth sharing? Mm. I think the best bit of advice that I could pass on is summed up in a statement made by a friend of mine. Um, James Brian Smith is his name. Um, Jim Smith is what I call him. But um, he, in, in teaching students about Christian spiritual formation, he happened upon, I actually think it was a gift of the Spirit. And the statement is that I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. The kingdom of God is not in trouble, and neither am I. And that, I would put it as a piece of advice to, to, to live in that statement, to take it on as a, um, as a confession of faith, as a mantra if you need it, to remind yourself that you are not someone who is constantly failing even though that's how you might feel. Instead, you, Erica, as a writer, as a mother, as a wife, as whatever role you're undertaking at heart, you are one in whom Christ dwells and delights. That's awesome. I love that. What is a goal that you have in the next 
five years? Oh boy, this question is hard for me because I've never been particularly good at setting goals, but I have set one for myself, which is that I, I would like to be um, sort of 50-50, 50% wife and mother and um, keeper of my home and, um, you know, as my husband and I in the next 10, 15 years head toward retirement years, I want to be 50% able to, to do all those things and 50% writer and speaker. And um, speaking is something that I would, would like to do more and more of. That's, that's really um, where I feel more alive and I was so grateful for an editor to say to me that, generally speaking, he has worked with speakers who are writers or writers who are speakers. And he uses a different approach depending on what people are. Mm. And I, I'm more of a speaker who is a writer. So I'd like to move more into the speaking realm. So that is a goal. I'm trying to own that as a goal. <laughs> well, I think... I think you are moving in the right direction. There's like a lot of resources out there for um, figuring out how to get more on the speaking circuit. So, um, so I hope that you can achieve that. We're all praying that soon we'll be able to gather together again. Yeah, exactly. When this is all over, there'll be plenty of opportunities. That's right. um, if you could have dinner or drinks with one person, who would it be and why? That one is hard. I was trying <laughs> to think the celebrity realm. And um, I think probably in, in the realm of um, the, you know, the bigger names, I would probably choose Bill and Melinda Gates hmm. because I am so moved by the good that they are doing in the world. And I know a lot of that comes from Melinda's um, you know, childhood faith that has grown with her into adulthood. And I, I would love to explore with them what they are doing in, um, as they use their incredible resources to um, make this world a place of more and more human flourishing. I'd love to explore that. I love that answer. <laughs> okay, last one. Of course, I have to ask about books that you could recommend that you've read recently and any podcasts that you're enjoying. Oh, yeah. Well, I have to out myself as a history nerd. So. <laughs> Um, so a lot, a lot of what I read is history and, um, there, there are two books that I've recently read. Um, one is actually written by a friend of mine. Um, sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, a, a book written by a friend of mine, uh, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson wrote a book called A Sojourner's Truth. Um, Natasha is an African American woman who is a, um, a friend of mine in real life and I've had the um, the privilege of working with her a little bit on a, a nonprofit that she founded, and um, learning about the journey of African American, especially African American women, has meant a lot to me. And the other book is a, a book of history that particularly pertains to that. Um, you've probably read it. It's a New York Times bestseller by Isabel Wilkerson called The Warmth of Other Suns. I haven't, but Have you, I like uh, that title. Oh, it's about, uh, it, you know, it's an epic story, the story of the Great Migration, when so many black people from the South fled the South during the era of Jim Crow. And she does such a masterful job 
uh, telling that story because she hones in on the stories, the individual stories of three particular people who uh, one went to Los Angeles, one to Chicago, and one to New York City. Um, because people living in the South didn't all go one place. Right? So many, you know, two million people left the South during the era of Jim Crow, but they didn't all end up in one place. They went different places. And she traces those stories so beautifully, and there's so much to be learned. Um, but the teaching is gentle. I think a lot of times um, teaching about racial reconciliation is done with an, um, it can feel like it's done with an eye toward making, especially perhaps um, European Americans feel guilty about their own um, position of privilege. Mm -hmm. That's what it can feel like. I don't, I'm not saying that that's the way it's intended. That's what it can feel like. Mm -hmm. This book is presented so beautifully that you find yourself getting lost in the history and you, you begin to own these stories and recognize that um, you or your family or you, the people of your particular heritage played a role. And you recognize there are changes that are needed, badly needed, even today. And you want to be a part of that change. So I have really appreciated that book. Oh, that's a good one. I think I definitely need to get that. <laughs> are you a podcast listener? I do listen to some podcasts. Um, and I would probably say that my absolute favorite um, is a podcast from the author I mentioned, James Brian Smith. Mm -hmm. Jim Smith has a podcast. Um, he is the head of the Apprentice Institute at Friends University. And he has a weekly podcast called things above. It's a podcast for mind discipleship, as he calls it. So every week he just offers a, a thought from above. Um, that, that title is taken from Colossians 3, which says to set your mind on things above. So I just, I love that podcast. That, that is one that I listen to pretty religiously. There are lots of others that I listen to some, including uh, a history podcast and, the, and a theology offshoot called The Road to Now. Um, a friend of mine, Bob Crawford of the Avett Brothers, he and a history nerd friend of his started this podcast called The Road to Now. And then there's a theology offshoot of that, The Road to Now Theology. I love that podcast. Oh, there's so many good ones out there. It's like hard to ever get to all of them, but I love to hear what people are enjoying. Yeah, yeah. And I am grateful to have listened to a number of episodes of yours. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> Really grateful to be a guest here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me about, you know, really personal issues and just about your book and many congratulations on that. I know what a big deal it is to publish a book and um, you'll never forget that for the rest of your life. So thank you so much for sharing your message with us. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you. 